us, Lord Jesus. God, we thank you for who you are and everything that you do and your plan of the ages. God, we thank you, God, for what you've done for us. We thank you that we can live for you. of a heart will be acceptable to you, Lord God. Good morning, Family Church. It's great to see everyone this morning. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Is that how we're living, church? May we be a church that lives only for Christ. Let us go to our Father in prayer as we begin today. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you. We recognize that without you, we are nothing, and our lives would be nothing without your Spirit working on us, without the blood of your Son covering us, Father. We thank you for that. We recognize, Father, that we fail you so often, yet your grace continues to pour on over our hearts, Father, and we thank you for that. I thank you for everybody here today, Father. We thank you that it's Father's Day, Father, and we do ask that we as fathers live in your grace and truth and that we look at our families as little churches in a way that we will lead our families to glorify and honor you, Father, whether that's teaching our children, whether that's loving our wives selflessly, Father, I ask that you give us the ability by your spirit to do so. Father, we ask right now, though, as we dive into your word, that your word will work in the hearts and minds of all of us, and let your spirit be known in this place. We love you and praise you, and it's through Christ's name, amen. Well, church, today we're continuing our series in Philippians, as Casey last week shared, that sweet fellowship is key amongst God's people as it is the blood of Christ that makes us unified in him. Casey also mentioned that God, Christ, is the author and perfecter of our faith. God keeps us safe in Christ. Amen? Amen. Finally, we also learned that we mature in fellowship, in discernment, in love, as the Holy Spirit works in us as believers, as we live in Christ. And as that happens, that changes every area of our lives. It changes our marriages. It changes the way we parent. It changes the way we look at all situations that we face. Today, we are going to look at six truths in Christ that will expand and grow our view of God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is either pure 
or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And as we dive in the book or the letter of Philippians, in Christ is where we will go. And as we come up, hopefully we'll have a more higher, lofty, expanded view of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because that's what we're here for. God becomes bigger as we become smaller, church, as God's agenda drives us instead of our own. Husbands, I would ask you, are you loving your wives selflessly? Wives, are you respecting your husbands regardless if they deserve it or not? Because as our view of God expands, it even trickles down into our marriage, how we look at God, church. So this is a huge, important topic for us to dive into today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Philippians 1, 12 through 18. That's Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And I'm not sure where Casey's at today, but I'm going to go through six passages, not one today, Casey. So, so I hope you'll be happy about that. Um, and it says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. Now I want you to put your put yourself in the Philippian shoes as they're reading this letter from their fearless leader and good friend Paul the apostle and they realize he is still in prison. And you got to wonder what they were thinking about because they thought that Paul was going to be spreading the gospel to all the world, right? And instead what's he doing? He's sitting in prison. And this has been going on now for the last two years, right? This must have challenged their faith. They must have wondered, possibly, is God really sovereign over all things? Because this does not seem to make sense. But before we go on there, I just have this really deep thought that I'm going to have to share with you. Paul the Apostle reminds me of Michael Jordan. Um... Michael Jordan played for the Chicago Bulls. Paul the Apostle was born in Chicago. No, he wasn't born in Chicago. But, um, but Michael Jordan was an unstoppable force on offense and defense in basketball. You don't have a lot of guys that are phenomenal at offense and phenomenal at defense. And I won't go too much into that because I can get really excited about thinking about that. But um, he was the guy that when the game was on the line, you knew Michael Jordan was going to get the ball because he thrived on making the last second shot right before the buzzer went off. And in the Christian world, Paul the Apostle was the most single influential leader, author, missionary at that time. He wrote almost half of the New Testament. So to the Philippians, Paul being in prison was like taking Michael Jordan out of the game at the, last, at the most crucial moment 
when the game was on the line. This must have baffled the Philippians. They probably couldn't have understand why God would allow Paul, the apostle, to go to prison. Why would God have got the gospel stop in Rome? Is really God sovereign over all things? This must have been things that they struggled with, church. And I ask you, have you been there before? Where you're wondering what's going on as your life seems to be falling apart and you're trying to trust in God and the more you seem to trust in God, the more it seems things get worse? Have you been there, church? Because I have. But truth number one says, God's ways are not like our ways. Let me say it again. Truth number one, God's ways are not like our ways, church. Please turn with me to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And it says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Time and time again, we see that God's ways contradict our human thinking. We often are looking at circumstances from a self-focused perspective on how it will benefit or help me instead of what will most magnify and glorify God. The Christian's life is often paradoxical to what we want, right? To live, Jesus says, we must what? Die, right? To gain, we must sacrifice, right? Or lose, that's good, right? So to find freedom, we have to what? Be a slave. So God's ways are definitely different than ours, church, but we have to be reminded of Proverbs 3, 5 that says what? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? Church, I ask you, are we trusting in the Lord in our present circumstances that we're in right now? Or are we leaning on our own understanding? God becomes small and we become big when we trust in ourselves, church. And you, gotta, and you may ask, how do I know if I have a small view of God? Well, I have three things for us to look at. You may have a small view of God. When trouble arises, you let the why question control your thinking. And you get frustrated at God because God's not letting you in on why you're going through suffering. You may have a small view of God. You, number two, you may have a small view of God if... You try to help God out. You're trying to, you try to put yourself in God's shoes and you say, okay, if I was God, I would do this. And you start giving God advice, suggestions, and, and, and things of that sort, right? It's sort of like this. Well, God, you know, you know, Uncle Joe, if you would really help him out, he would do much better. And just think how many people might come to Christ, right? We start helping him out. Thirdly, you may have a small view of God if when times get tough, you try to bargain with God. Okay, God, if you'll just help me with this situation, I will start reading the word every day. And I might even, I'll even pray too. And when things get really tough, we might even throw in fasting, right? So I want us to know Paul did not have a view of God 
like this. He had a big view of God. He did not try to bargain with God, nor did he try to figure out how he could get something from God. He had a high view of God, church. He looked at every situation as how he could honor God in that circumstance that he was facing. But if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Philippians 1.12 and we'll start in. You guys thought I was almost done. I'm just starting here. So um, we're in Philippians 1.12 and it says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul starts um, talking to the Philippians and the first thing he says is, Well, you know, jail's pretty rough. Um, I only get bread and water here and the bread's pretty stale and the jailers, the, the, the guards... They are sort of mean. They have bad days, good days. I'm chained to one every six to eight hours, so it's, you know, it's wearing on my wrist and theirs. Is that how he acted? Is that what he told them? Not at all, right? Paul was not focused on his own hardships and circumstances. You know what he was focused on? The, adva- the gospel's advancing. It's going forward. That's what he was telling them. That's what he was excited about. J. Adams, the great biblical counselor, theologian, pastor, writes this. Immediately as the first matter of business in this letter, Paul addresses the question. Paul is deeply concerned to straighten this out. So he says, I want you to know what was it they needed to know? That what had happened to Paul, his imprisonment, had not curtailed the gospel. That God had not, had not goofed, his providence was very much at work in his imprisonment. So what we see here is Paul was making sure the Philippians knew God didn't goof. God didn't make a mistake, right? He actually said this is actually part of God's sovereign plan. This is exactly what was supposed to happen because it advanced the gospel even further, right? So church, are we trusting God's providence like Paul the Apostle? Or are we questioning God and doing things in our own strength? Because truth number two is God's sovereignty will come to fruition. Truth number two is God's sovereignty will come to fruition. We're going to look at a few verses. We're going to turn first to Psalm 115.3. That's Psalm 115.3. And it says this, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him, church. Or we can look at Psalm 103.19. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. Or let's go to Acts 17, 26, and 27. That's Acts 17, 26, and 27. And it says this, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What do these passages tell us, church? They tell us that God's purposes and plans will come to fruition. 
Not only that, but he's working in the details of our lives, right? He's working, and as it said, he's placing us here. He's determined the time set for us, the exact places where we should live, right? So he's working in the details of our lives for our good. Paul in prison seemed like the recipe for Christian extinction, but in reality, this was the launching pad to continue the spread of the gospel. This is exactly what God wanted. Let's move to verse 13. We're still in Philippians 1, verse 13. And it says this, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. Truth number three. Truth number three. God gives us purpose as we trust in him. God gives us purpose as we trust in him. So Paul has been in prison for now two years. He has a Roman, more, more like called a Praetorian guard, is the right word for it, right? And these were Caesar's elite soldiers. He had 16,000 of these soldiers. And Paul now is sitting in prison with one of them chained to his arm. About six to eight feet, they say, the chain is. And they would rotate, rotate these guards. So think about this. We gather that Paul must have been able to have visitors when he was in prison. So all day long, Paul was visiting with Christians and ministering to them. And think about this. These guards saw Paul do this, right? He's sitting in chains himself, and he's ministering to the believers outside of prison, right? That must have been an amazing sight. Not only that, but guess what most of Paul's conversations were probably focused in on? Do we have any guesses? Christ, possibly, right? Christ-centered conversations. So these guards heard this all day long, right? So this must have been a, 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 just an amazing sight because we have, at the end of Philippians, if you'll turn a few pages over, the Philippians 4.22, 4.22, and it says this, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So what we gather here is Paul ministering to fellow Christians and talking about Christ and reaching these guards. They would go and share this with other guards. And it rang all the way in Caesar's household, the gospel. The gospel went all the way there. That was God's sovereign plan, church. Paul goes on in verse 14. We're still back at Philippians 1, verse 14. And he says this, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So we see Paul sitting in prison was advancing the gospel, right? But also, it was giving Christians more courage, right? To stand up for Christ as their leader was sitting being persecuted, right? So the reality of it is, church, it wasn't Rome who put him in prison. It wasn't the Jews who put Paul in prison. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself that put him in prison. Remember, Paul, remember, God was over the details of Paul's life. And guess what? He's over the details of your, your life, Ralph. Your life, your life, Sean. Your life. He's over all of our lives. His sovereignty. Do we live that, one, that way, church? Do we live that way, recognizing that God has 
our lives under control? Jay Adams says this, a great analogy about Paul being in prison, chained to this garden. He says this, look down the chain. Don't miss the opportunity on the other end. Right? Truth number four, we don't find purpose by looking for it, church. Truth number four is we don't find purpose by looking for it. Think about this. Okay, Paul the Apostle. He's getting ready to go to prison. He's, man, he's like, man, I hope God's going to really give me my, my purpose. I hope I can really find my divine purpose while I'm sitting in prison because that's what I'm promised if I follow Christ. Is that what he was about? Finding his divine purpose? He was about magnifying God and living for God at every point of his life, regardless if he would lose his life, right? That's why Philippians 121 says what? For to me, to live is Christ, right? He was about living for Christ. His life was about living for Christ, right? Paul was not focused on what he wanted, which included purpose, church. And I wonder sometimes if we are more focused on finding our purpose than living for Christ. Because it seems many of us are so desperate to find purpose and significance in this life. But the reality of it is, church, when we seek God, He leads us to real purpose. Purpose is the fruit or the byproduct of faithfulness. Let me say that again. Purpose is the fruit or the byproduct to faithfulness. Where there is living faith, their purpose will follow. Where there is living faith, their purpose will follow. But I will say, church, if we are following God to find purpose, we are in the business of using God instead of worshiping Him. Let me say that again. If we are following God to find purpose, then we are in the business of using God instead of worshiping Him, church. And I will tell you, God can see through a heart that is trying to get something from him and not worship him because he deserves all our efforts and strength anyway. It's like this. It's like tonight. My wife isn't here, so I can say this. She's not here. Our son's sick. Um, it's like tonight. Um, I'm going to wash the dishes for her. I may even uh, give her a foot massage. And then tomorrow, you know what will happen? She'll let me pick out the restaurant we go to on our date night. Is that love? Is that love? That's called selfishness. I'm manipulating my wife to get what I want. Instead of selflessly living that way every day, regardless if I get something or not from her. Right? Let's continue on in the passage, or I'll continue going in this direction. I need to move on. Let's look at verses 15 through 17, and it says this. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So what we learn here is there's two groups, right? There's one group that is impure motives that are spreading Christ, and then there's another group that have pure motives for spreading Christ, and it says that the group that has impure motives, their heart is filled with envy and 
rivalry as they spread Christ, right? And the Greek word for envy here literally refers to the jealous envy that negatively energizes someone with an embittered mind, conveys displeasure at another's good. And the other Greek word for rivalry means strife. It means a readiness to quarrel, having a contentious spirit, affection for dispute. Paul's agitators were Christians who were energized when Paul's life was falling apart. When his life was at his worst, he's sitting in prison, those guys inwardly are like, great, he finally gets what he deserves. That's why they were thinking of the Apostle Paul. And I ask you, church, have you been there before where you have somebody that you dislike and you heard that their life is falling apart? Maybe they didn't get a job promotion that they were bragging about. Or maybe their, their, their house is going into foreclosure. Or maybe, worse yet, they're getting a divorce. And there's something inside you that celebrates at their tragedy. And maybe he celebrates a little hard, but maybe there's something in you where you get a burst of instant gratification. The sun shines a little brighter that day, if you may. I ask you, what was Paul's response to these Christian gossips? We would assume that Paul the Apostle would say, you know, we got to shut these guys down. I am the Apostle Paul for crying out loud. I can't have my name rake through the mud. It's going to ruin my reputation. I'm the Apostle in, in the next few centuries. Christians are going to call me Saint Paul. I got to make sure that I look good. Is that what he said? Truth number five, our focus is on God's fame and glory, not our own. Truth number five, our focus is on God's fame and glory, not our own, church. Let's hear Paul's response. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's response should remind us of somebody else. Jesus Christ, right? When he was going to die selfishly on our behalf, taking on the wrath of God, he did not stand up for his own reputation, church. Paul was not motivated to fight for his own reputation. It wasn't about his name and fame at all. It wasn't about his glory. He was here to lift up Christ and Christ alone. And I wonder, church, what is our motivation when we try to stand up for ourselves and fight for our own reputations? Are we doing that really for Christ? Paul was consistently putting his sinful nature to death. He knew that if he stood up for his own reputation, it would be coming from a heart filled with pride and selfishness, church. But I will say there is times that Paul really did have zeal and passion. When you look at the book of Galatians and we look at the book of Corinthians, you have Paul just, you know, pretty much being pretty hard on these teachers, false teachers that were coming into the church, right? And he starts just going off on these folks. Do you know why he did that? Because they were coming in distorting the gospel. They were distorting the gospel, and Paul knew he had to stand up for the gospel because if the gospel gets distorted, all of a sudden now there's going to be barriers for people to follow Christ, right? Not only that, 
But when we distort the gospel, do you know who we're really distorting? God. God is distorted if the gospel is distorted. Right? So that's why Paul stood up in those situations and times when it was for God, not himself, church. Church, whose glory are we fighting for? Our own or God's? Do we respond like Paul? Or are we more focused on standing up for ourselves, church? Is our life about lifting up God or lifting up ourselves? You know, this is a great, I'm going off here, but a great way to look at this is how do you handle your spouse? Are you always fighting to show that you're right and that your way is right and you're the one that is winning this argument? Because if you are, you're doing it from a heart of pride is what the word of God is telling us here. We're not standing up and fighting for ourselves anymore. We're not here to do that, right? We're here to magnify and glorify Christ. And I know, as I'm saying all these things, these truths are hard for us to swallow, church. I'm not expecting any of us to handle these things perfectly, right? But praise be to God that the Holy Spirit, if we have given our lives to Him in belief and repentance, if we really have done that, His Spirit lives inside of us, right? And He empowers us to not only understand these truths, but to live them out in our lives, right? But again, I will say to you, I am guilty of failing in all these areas. In all these areas, I, I tell you, I've done a terrible job at times in these areas. Whether we're talking about following God to get something from Him, I'm guilty. Or questioning His sovereignty, I'm guilty. Or wanting to protect my own reputation more than His, I'm guilty. Ask my wife. Okay? We're guilty. And truth number six. The gospel is driven by love. Truth number six. The gospel is driven by love. And we are recipients of this gospel. The gospel empowers us to have the right relationship with God because of his blood that covers us, church. Our sin is no longer counted against us. Grace frees us to love God and love others. The gospel has to be the center of why we practice and obey God. And I'm afraid that we often miss that. I'm afraid most of the time we're following God because we're trying to prove ourselves to God and try to be good enough and try to say, God, look at my good works. Look what I'm doing for you. I'm a good, good child of yours, right? Are we supposed to be trying to prove ourselves to God? Children of God are children of God. Children of God are children of God. We don't have to prove ourselves to God anymore. We don't have to be good enough, right? Because who does God see when he looks at us if we're, his, if we're God's child? Christ Jesus, right? Christ Jesus. It would be like myself. Um, right now, our, our son, we're potty training him. And we're hoping by the age of 10, he will be fully potty trained. We're hoping, but we'll see what happens. Right now, it would be like uh, me looking at Lukey, saying, Lukey, you know, this potty training business, we've been doing this now for five months. You're not cutting it. You're going to have to pack your bags. I know you're three, but you've got to pack your bags and, and leave here because 
you know, you're, you're just not doing what we want you to do anymore. And we act like that with God. We act like his love for us is so conditional. Isn't that absurd? That is absurd, church. God's love for us, God's love for his own is unlimited. That bounds for all eternity. The bigger our view of God, the more we will rest in his ways and his sovereignty regardless of the circumstances we face. We will stop chasing after purpose like it's a God within itself and actually start serving the one true God. We will see that when we are most satisfied in God, guess what? It says what? That God will give us the desires of what? Our hearts, right? He will do that for us as we are walking with him. Church, we have to be a church that is focused and centered on the gospel. And if the worship team would like to come up, you guys are welcome anytime. God is what we're supposed to be about, church. We want his will, his ways to be filtered through everything that happens here at our church, in our families, right? We have to have a high and expanded view of of our God. God is God and there is no one like him, church. And I feel like often we're living like God is a small little idol that we carry around instead of a God that is all-consuming, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent, omnipresent, in control of all things, church. This is the God that we serve. We have to have at the family church a high and expanded view of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please go, come with me into prayer as we pray to him now. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are so gracious to us. You continue to pour your love and grace and mercy on us. And we don't, we don't deserve it at all. But we thank you through the empowerment of your spirit working through us. You can make even our works filthy rags that will some way glorify and honor you. But we thank you that this love that you have given us is continuous and unabounding and, and will never end and will have this love for all eternity. Help us to love you like that. Help us at the family church to make disciples of Jesus Christ because we are so in love with our Lord and Savior. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.